Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is Wednesday. And so we have trade talks, and then we'll... We have trade talks tomorrow yeah. at a higher level. Partial trade talks. We've had low-level trade talks through the week. Why don't you bring in our partial guest? Drew Mattis, MetLife Investment Management Chief Market Strategist. Good morning to you, Drew. Good morning. We're back to square one, aren't we? Uh, it seems to be. Uh, if the United States takes a deal like that, like the one that's been reported in the Financial Times, an extra 10 million tons of U.S. soybeans and call it a truce, what would your take be? Uh, that we just lost. Uh, you know, I think, you know, the outcome of this trade story is going to be, do we have a long-term sustainable solution for the U.S. and for China in terms of our ability to trade with each other? And if we don't end up at a place where we think it's f fair trade between both countries in perpetuity, then this whole thing has been wasted. Um, and we should have just never done it in the first place. So I think, you know, I, I can't imagine that this is this is something that's going to play well. Yeah. And but you know, obviously though, markets are taking it positively. And you know, uh, you kind of look at that and you think to yourself, you know, should you be taking this positively, or should you be thinking, right. as you just said, we're back to square one? Well, the taking it positively people want to hear from Drew Mattis because you have a takingly positive view on the economy. Can you model a sub two percent GDP growth? Or are you still nicely above two percent at some former run rate? Uh, we're still above two percent for this year and for next year. Uh, you know wow. where, where it gets tricky is you're beginning to see economy-wide profit margins begin to dip a little bit. Uh, that could eventually lead to firms uh, looking to cut back on things like investment and 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 uh, labor. Uh, but we haven't seen the cutoff on the labor side yet. Uh, and claims, you know, for me, claims is the most important data point around. It's not payrolls. I don't care how many jobs are created. I just need to know whether the consumer has to worry about being fired. And right now, the answer is no. Claims are inching up just a little bit, just a little bit. Drew, why is that data point so important? And why for you is that not a lagging indicator? For many people, they might look at that situation and say, you know what, if we wait for hours work to drop away, for claims to pick up, we're too late to the party. In fact, the party's over. Well, because I think we've gone through such a tight labor market for such a long period of time that I think if you asked CEOs and hiring managers, if things slow down, are you going to pull job openings? Are you not going to hire? Um, they might say, well, we're, we're going to be more cautious in our hiring. None of them, though, are at the point where they feel that things are weak enough where they think they can let someone go because they know someone else is waiting to hire that person. So once that person walks out the door, they are gone. And you've got to start this process of sifting through the labor market, what's left of the labor market or the part of the labor market yeah. that's looking for work to try and replace that position. So from a market perspective, where is the opportunity right now? Last week, we get punched in the face by a growth scare. The S&P 500 only drops a third of 1%. This week, it's we are whipsawed by trade headlines. We drop a couple of percentage points. What do you do in this environment right now? What are you suggesting people do, Drew? Uh, you know, we've been looking for ways to take smart risk. Um, know what risk you're taking, first of all, because, they're, they're, you know, uh, you can take credit risk. You can take duration risk so you can lengthen your investments. Um, you can take liquidity risk. Um, and, and so if you're worried about what things might do going forward, you know, one of the things that we've been looking at, you know, because of our, our you know, what we're able to invest in is we, we look a lot at private assets right now. And, and the reason we do that is because um, we're willing to give up
up some of the liquidity uh, to get the higher yield. Uh, and of course, some of, those, some of those purchases also come with better protection. So you're taking potentially, potentially less credit risk uh, and you're getting some liquidity risk, assuming that when you go to sell your public assets that those are actually as liquid as you thought they were in the first in, place. In the stock market, can you go international in emerging market? Is it, are you all domestic all the time with a 2% relative? That's like a relative ginormous economy, isn't it? Well, our investment management arm is really focused on fixed income. Yeah, I know uh, that, but give me an equity view. Come on, <laughs> yeah. it's Wednesday. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you certainly can. And, and then the question is, well, you know, where do you want to expose yourself to? And I tend to think of the world in, in, as divided into two ways. You have the U.S. supply chain, yeah, um, well and said. then you have the China supply chain. Okay. Um, and although the two are linked in many ways, uh, there are they are pretty distinct if you kind of dig down into the details. Yes, we all source from each other, but uh, those two supply chains, you can usually see who's doing yeah. better by what the how those emerging market countries are faring. I got to go back to your original work with Maury Harris. Fed, one and done? Uh, we are one and done. Uh, for this year. Um, we don't expect rate cuts next year. We don't think they're going to be necessary. Um, and we think if you, if you go more than one this year, then you're, then you're really calling into question this whole idea that this is a mid-cycle slowdown yeah. or that these are insurance cuts. Priya Misra with us. And the reason you need to listen to this is John knows she adds value, not only across all that John Farrow and Tom King do, but really adds value on the real yield. You'll see it Friday uh, here, 1 p.m. ish on Bloomberg TV. And it really has come down, John, to the real and the nominal yield, yep. a permanence there. She's fantastic. And we're lucky to get some of her time this morning. Priya Misra of TD Securities, the global head of rate strategy. Priya, let's start with the debate of the last 24 hours. It's QE. It's not QE. Chairman Powell says it isn't QE. Does it matter whether it is or isn't, Priya? What's the difference? Yes. Yeah, so, hello. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you for the kind words. Uh, so it does matter because, you know, I think um, what they're actually doing helps the repo market. It, it brings reserves into the system. But a lot of the impact of QE was through the signaling channel. If you remember from 2009 to 2014, when they did QE, they were actually trying to push out the start of the first high uh, of the first hike. I, I, th I thought that that signal through forward guidance was probably more powerful than the actual stock of buying. So I think what the Fed is trying very hard to say is that this is not monetary policy. If they are buying treasuries and they're likely to buy bills, that this is not, we should not be taking any signal from monetary policy. So therefore, it should not yeah. mean higher stocks. It shouldn't mean lower rates. I think that signal value, it's, it's important to distinguish. They really need another name for it. I don't love the organic yeah. QE name. It makes it sound like, what was the earlier QE? Like toxic or you know, conventional QE. So I think we need a name like reserve management buying or liability driven buying. Sort of boring names, but uh, liability drive dri <laughs> liability driven buying just rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> Priya, right. the the great unspoken yesterday at the International Monetary Fund is a percent of full faith and credit debt worldwide with a negative yield. This morning Greece, with their three month T bill, a negative yield. Greece is well is that a linear function or is there a kink or a tip point where there's too much negative debt? 
Yeah, so I think BOJ and ECB are realizing this. I mean, I think at some point, negative rates become counterproductive. I would actually argue in the U.S., any negative rates is extremely counterproductive. It can potentially break the financial system because we've got uh, you know money market funds with fixed NAVs. We've got a fractional reserve system. I actually think the U.S. negative won't work. But even in Europe and, and Japan, now they are trying tiering. You know, they're trying other things to try and reduce the counterproductiveness. I think essentially... You know, it's hard for a central banker to say this, but they have to say that at some point we're done. We really yeah. need the structural side. We need the fiscal side to come on because at some point you can't keep lowering rates. So I don't think, you know, even the other um, central banks will probably lower much more into negative territory. But for the U.S., I think actually Chair Powell's already said it's not on his list of things. But certainly among investors, I'm getting a lot of questions that is the U.S. next for negative. And, you know, that just creates more of this wow. reach for yield and and people take risks that they are not. They should not be taking. This is they, this confidence issue again, John. Yeah, look, I think we all think the European fixed income market is totally nuts. But is it, is it any surprise that the three-month bill, the yield on it in Greece, is negative when you have a negative fifty basis point policy rate at I the ECB? Know. I mean, right. that's what you've got to price off. Do you think yeah. Greece's money good for three months? Most people would assume they probably yeah. are for three months. Therefore, why should well, the yield be down there? And there's a currency calculation there. Yeah, as well. look, you'll get yeah. a ton of pushback yeah. against that call. I have no doubt. But Priya, that's where we're at. It's crazy talk in the bond market. And as you point out, given where Europe is priced right now, where do yields go in the United States? One of the really interesting developments, I think, of the last couple of weeks was Japan and the BOJ really, really focusing on the front end and a focus that may drift towards the Federal Reserve. Chairman Powell talked about that yesterday, Priya. What are your thoughts about right. it? So I think, uh, again, in the attempt to communicate that this asset buying is not QE, I think they're, they're going to try and focus on the front end. I'm actually not a big fan of that because we are seeing massive inflows into the front end. So the Fed, and it, it all depends on how they're going to do this. I hope it's over time, and I hope they actually help the repo market through repo operations until they yeah. build that buffer. But they really should not be creating a scarcity in the front end. So I was kind of hoping that they'll buy across the curve. But I think because of the communication challenge, they have talked about the front end. I don't think it's an attempt to steepen the curve. I think it's just an attempt to say, look, we're not taking any duration risk out of the market. So don't go and take on a, you know, credit risk or equity right. risk. That's not the intent of this asset buying. Will there be a wave of new government paper and a wave of new issued corporate paper given permanence of low rates? So I think government paper, absolutely. I mean, I think depending on the election next year, I actually think fiscal stimulus happens either way, uh, irrespective of the uh, outcome. So I do think the deficit is going to keep rising. You know, corporate is interesting. Financial conditions are extremely easy. Uh, you know, credit spreads are tight. And yet corporate supply seems to be declining, which I think reflects the drop in CapEx. So I actually would love from a macro standpoint if there is a pickup in corporations. But I think if CapEx is weak, then the demand side for corporates to issue all this paper, you know, do they have productive um, you know, avenues to invest? No, they don't. That's but the, what's unclear. Yeah, I, I, I totally take your point. And I'm going, John, I think this is a huge deal. Is, is there a demand for all this money that's out there to go somewhere? And I, I'm not right, sure there is. These companies yeah, aren't complaining about access to capital or cost of capital, are they, Priya? 
Right. Um, you know, and, and if it's just financial engineering, you know, there's a, there's some uh, some limit to that. So I, I I think this is the problem. Yeah. If the Fed is trying to resolve this uncertainty, you know, uh, business investment, and all they do is cut rates, I'm not sure the 75 base points of insurance cuts right. will be enough. Do we do we need a government investment? This was an enduring theme yesterday with a managing director. You know, you're in Davos and there's a big ad on the side of a bus. Bus, you need to have infrastructure and name your Central Asian country. Are we at a point here where we finally got to do infrastructure coast to coast and worldwide? Yes, I think politically that might be harder in certain parts of the world. I think in the U.S., once we get the election out of the way, I think when policymakers are sort of looking at yeah. how do you stimulate, I think infrastructure is the way out. It's just going to be yeah. up to details. Is it all fully government funded? I think all of that we have to figure out. But I'm kind of hoping that as we get into full-on campaign season, that both parties will sort of bring up this infrastructure idea as a boost to aggregate demand in 2021. But that's, yeah. that's a bit far off. Priya Mizra, thank you so much. TD Securities. John, a uh, lot going on uh, right now. I see Brazil. It's a, it's a piece of data here on an emerging market with some inflation there, but we knew that. Global growth uh, really ebbing in here. And a lot yeah. of talk yesterday, John, on food prices in China is a real domestic constraint within their debate. It's out well in excess of two standard deviations on pork prices uh, as well. With JOHCM funds, the head of their credit, their Don't rate market. This. Don't butcher this. Okay, then you, please. Go on. You've got it. Have a go. <clears throat> Lyle Topagulu. Did I do okay? Lyle Topcholu. Topcholu? Topcholu. Topcholu. There we go. You set me up for this, didn't you? <laughs> he totally set you up. <laughs> oh, oh, you're in on this too? I'm not in on it. No, 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 okay. no, no. I'm in trouble. <laughs> do you know the great Mark Crumpton? It's great to see you, Lyle. Mark Crumpton's in the News Hall of Fame in Washington. He keeps a list in his desk of all the names I mispronounce. Oh, boy. So you're on an August list right now. John, bring in our, our sainted guest this morning. What's her name? Lale Tocholi. He's going to get it right at some point, Lale. I promise you. It's great to see you. Thank you. Let's talk about this market. Last week, it was recession on, recession off. This week, it's trade deal on, trade deal off. You must be really, really frustrated at the moment as someone staring at this market, looking at how it's whipsawed by one headline to the next. What are your thoughts at the moment? You know, I, I wouldn't say frustrated. Um, I think... I sometimes just put the blinders on. It's the same story that just repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats. And there's no need to do knee-jerk reactions if you sort of scratch the sur um, surface in the market. It's the same story. Defensives are expensive, both on the equity and the credit side. Um, and the credit overall just seems really expensive. It's actually one time, and you know how opinionated I am yeah. on pretty much everything. I really just lack conviction. I don't know where we're going to go from here. We haven't broken out of some key ranges in credit in high yield, for instance. For high yield spreads, really the range of 2019, the tights in and around 350 basis points, the wides through much of the year in and around 450 basis points. And right now, where are we? Somewhere slap bang in the like middle. Four thirty-five, four forty, something around there. Pushing the upper end. But here's the thing, though. So this is where the top down and the bottoms are really differs. If you look at it from top down, you will see month to date we're about, call it, let's say 40 bips wider. What's really fascinating is, you know, if you look at the sectors, energy, do you know year to date energy returns are actually negative 1%? High yield is up 13%. Where people are hiding out, like in defensives, like cable sector is up 16 and a half percent. 
So, and here is the other stat, which I think people forget. Two thirds of the high yield index trades inside the index and the rest third is like cats and dogs. It's really hard to find value. And I think this is where, you know, I always do the advertisement for active management. Of course. You, you, you need somebody to dig through the rubble to find you the value and where to go. Because top-down numbers can be misleading. Well, what kind of signal do you take away from something like triple Bs, which is the uh -huh. bottom of the stack in investment grade, and triple Cs, bottom of the stack in high yield? That spread, I think it's the widest in several years. What kind of signal do you take away from that, Lali? The outperformance that you're getting in and around the border of investment grade and high yield, and the underperformance that you're getting right at the bottom? Well, look, the triple C's, majority of them struggle. They're either secular pressures or cyclical pressures, and some of them just has to restructure. Triple B's, you know, it's, it's simple supply and demand. Look at the flows that are coming into credit. You just, you just got to buy. It's phenomenal flow. Mm. There's nothing you can do. I want to congratulate you on arguably the essay of the month on accounting. It is a fabulous workout of what's called adjusted EBITDA. Now, we're well, not gonna, on a Wednesday, we're not going to do this. On a Friday, we'd go into this in detail. But the bottom line is something down the income statement that is taken as gospel by the street <laughs> is, is suspect. Why should I not be addicted to adjusted EBITDA like I'm addicted to the VIX? Because it's nonsense. It's made up. It is a calculation of the income statement pulling in depreciation from the balance sheet, right? That is made up, no question about that. <laughs> it is, and I think EBITDA to a degree in certain industries can give you a clue. I'm not against EBITDA. What I'm against is adjusted EBITDA, where we start adding back things, which internally we call them you know, management's past sins, mm -hmm. like you opened up more stores that you needed at retail. Well, right, they that's add called those Forever bags. 21. <laughs> okay. Um, those those should not be given the benefit. You you messed up. Okay. You messed up. Have we, this is critical, and I don't want to get you in trouble with your general counsel. But with WeWork, we company and community adjusted EBITDA, are we finally at a point? Not that we wander back to the romance of Graham Dodd and Cottle, but are we finally at a point where we get away from some of this adjusted foolishness? No. Because she, in the, she doesn't. She answers single word questions. She's very straight in the room. She's very very straight about how she answers questions. Um, no, because I mean, I was glad that there was some rationality. Perhaps was coming back into the market as people actually read yeah. through the prospectus. Perhaps in the first time, which which is a good start. <laughs> um, but look at you know, I'm looking at some of the high yield deals that really remind me of my leverage loan days back in 2006. 2006, 2007, where we would start with like negative 29 of EBITDA, we would add back and it would be $200 million of EBITDA and that's what the deal is sold. And here is the catch. This is where people forget. That's what runs, that's where your covenants run off from. That's what determines how much leverage yeah, you put on a business. I, I want to make clear, folks, covenants isn't Raiders of the Lost Ark in 2006. <laughs> it's what got us into trouble. What do you think the consequences of this will be? You've written extensively about it. I know you have. I've read about it. But for the benefit of our listeners, Lale, this covenant light era of the last, especially the last few years, what do you think the consequences of that will be? 
Well, it's going to be a prolonged default cycle. It's going to be substantial lower recoveries. And I think, you know, I joke and I say the world is upside down. And you're actually seeing it more in the leveraged loan market now, where people are supposed to be secure and feeling good about it. It is estimated that the leveraged loan recovery this cycle is going to be around 55 cents as opposed to 75 historically. And technically, you're secured. I think people forget, again, this is just a top-down investing and running with our historical knowledge the world yeah. is really upside down like you don't just talk the talk you walk the walk too i should congratulate you on the year so far your johcm income fund is up i believe around about 19 percent through 2019 yeah, okay. so far yeah. so let's talk about security selection <clears throat> what are you doing at the moment what are you focused on well, simplistically, trying to avoid the losers and, and just focus on the winners, which is really hard to do on credit. I mean, I don't think we've actually bought a single bond in the last three months. Really? There's just, is that there's top just of the market nothing. because of issuance? It's just a frenzy now where you just have to step aside? It's, it's just the, the pricing does not price for what I would consider to be the risk premium. You don't get compensated for taking mm -hmm. on what I would consider to be a less liquid piece of paper. That's just the nature of the high yield market. Right. And I think the covenants are poor and the leverage is misrepresented. Lale, it's great to catch up with you. Got to let you go. We, I wish we had more time with Lale. We should have her back again. We are going to do that. Lale Tocholu of JOHCM. Joining us right here on Bloomberg Surveillance. I want to stay in geopolitics right now because the news is literally breaking. I'll read you the Chinese press release here, just as one of them with a couple paragraphs uh, to it. We bring in Elaine Kaimark uh, with us through the Brookings Institute. She has written wonderful books on the presidential history, presidential messaging, presidential structure and governance. And Elaine, I need to rip up the script and go right to Turkey. This is the Chinese treatment from Xinhua of Mr. Erdogan announcing on Wednesday that Turkey launched Operation Spring of Peace in the northern Syria, quote, together with the Syrian National Army, our Turkish armed forces launched the Operation Spring of Peace towards the PKK, YPG, and Daesh, the Islamic State terrorist organizations. And, and this goes, folks, this is seven, eight hours away from us, 4.30 in the afternoon. Uh, Elaine, this takes in all history an apparatus of the United States of America to treat, to provide intelligence, to consider a set of responses. Is that apparatus remotely in place right now? The apparatus is fully in place. The commander-in-chief, however, operates without consultation of the people on the ground. The military is furious at this. The general who was in charge of this until he retired in March has written in Defense One, it's an, an online military blog, about how appalled he is at Trump's action by pulling out American forces from the Kurdish-occupied um, territory President Trump has put at risk 10,000 ISIS fighters who have been guarded by the Kurds. So if chaos erupts and the Kurdish guards are fighting the Turks, as they appear to be doing at any moment, then 10,000 ISIS fighters, most of whom are more than happy to go back and join the fight against the United States, 
we'll be roaming around yeah. and potentially rearming. I'm going to try to paint the map here quickly, Paul Sweeney, and uh, that we know where Syria is on the eastern Mediterranean, call it north and northeast of uh, Israel. And then you go up to that border with Turkey, four or five, six hundred miles long. You're 800 miles away from Istanbul. You're 400 miles uh, northeast, northeast, I should say, from Damascus. And all the maps show a presumed safe zone or border. Paul, I don't know how many miles that is. Is it a Gaza Strip width? I don't know. But it, it seems the messaging is a safe zone. Exactly. So, Elena, I think a lot of people are trying to, you know, get their hands around the news over the last couple of days of President Trump's uh, policy shift as it relates to the Kurds. What do you think are the short-term and long-term implications of what the president just did? Well, the short-term implications are clearly that the Republican senators whom he needs to defend him against impeachment are now criticizing him, including two of the most powerful and strongest allies. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Lindsey Graham are appalled at this action. And I don't know if they can take any action to stop it or reverse it, but it may be too late. So in the short term, this seems to be very tone-deaf politics. In the long term, it clearly means that no one's going to trust the United States of America in international affairs. No one has been a better ally to us in that region than the Kurds. And the Kurds are also very good fighters, and they have fought with us and died with us. You can find a clip of Trump even commending the Kurds for fighting with us in the fight against ISIS. And now he okay. has abandoned them to slaughter. Just, just for the sake of discussion, I'm going to take the tact of the president tweeting. I'm not going to go over the tweets this morning. There's, there's over a dozen of them. But bottom line, he says, the emotion of America is why are we in those distant wars? I mean, it sounds like Jefferson and the, you know, the Barbary pirates of another time. Tell me, Elaine, the history, which you are expert on, of our emotion of our men and women in distant wars. Um, we have had men and women in distant wars since the end of the Second World War when we became a world power. And we have intervened in very many places where we shouldn't have been. And then we've intervened in places where it made sense for our national security. When you had an enemy like ISIS that was chopping off people's heads and taking kidnapping victims and causing um, havoc throughout the region, um, yeah, it made sense for the United States to come to the aid of people who were trying to defeat ISIS. Um, does this mean that every intervention has been correct? No, of course not. But sometimes the United States does the right thing in the world, and in this instance we did. And therefore, a blanket foreign policy of withdrawing from the world is apt to cause more harm than good. So, Elaine, you mentioned you know the impact on the Republicans. How do you think this is going to... As we go to impeachment, and that's kind of where the president has been tweeting very aggressively, that's certainly top of mind, not surprisingly. How do you think the impeachment thing is just going to play out? Um, I think what's going to happen is that we will see the House write articles of impeachment. And one of the first decisions they have to make are, they will have to make is what do they write articles on? For instance, it's clear that they can write an abuse of power 
um, article based on the conversation with the Ukrainian president. It's clear that they can write an obstruction of justice uh, um, article based on actions during the Russian um, investigation and based on yesterday's decision not to um, not to respond to any of the House's inquiries for and requests for information. So the question is, what else? And I think that one of the things that is throwing a sort of wrench into this is, is this action he took with regard to the Kurds, is this in fact something that should be included in an article of impeachment? Because it is in fact dangerous to U.S. national security. And I think that they're going to have to, they're going to have to uh, noodle that one. And I, I don't have a mm-hmm. sense of that. This has been a great brief. Thank you so much. Elaine Kamark uh, with us with breaking news here on Turkey. A lot of other news uh, as well to look at. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.